0: And answers. How compatible is the Bible creation account and Darwin's theory of evolution? Can we bring the two together? Most Christians in the sciences are theistic evolutionists. But how strong is the support from the Bible and science for this position? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. In today's broadcast, Pat will be completing his interview with Dr. Fazal Rana as they discuss why they are not theistic evolutionists. And
1: when we probe those oldest rocks on earth, we see no evidence uh, for a primordial soup whatsoever. That idea is a scientific myth. It's not an an established scientific fact whatsoever. And so here's just two examples of claims that are made in biology textbooks that actually are contrary to what the prevailing view is uh, within the scientific community. But yet these two pieces of evidence that are described in biology textbooks are so often used to give credibility to the idea of chemical evolution.
2: Yes, you know, and you state intelligent design is the best answer. And often I hear when evolutionists talk, they seem to be kind of saying that. But instead of an intelligent designer, they'll often say nature, nature moved and they won't say created, but nature moved and this developed or nature did such and such and this developed, you know. And so it seems like instead of saying an intelligent creator, they're using nature. Do you find that to be uh, the case sometimes? Yes, that's an excellent point that you're bringing up, Pat. The
1: language that, again, that evolutionary biologists often use is language that essentially conveys intent and purpose, a teleology of sorts, right? But they're ascribing that intent and purpose, as you are pointing out, to nature instead of, of a creator. But on top of that, when you look at the way... Biologists describe biochemical and biological systems, the use of design language is unavoidable, and so it, there seems to be a real purpose and a real teleology behind nature and, and a real element of genuine design in nature that make better sense in a creation model's perspective than from an evolutionary perspective. So you know evolutionary biologists can't help themselves but to speak in ways that, that seemingly would be what you would hear a creationist say as opposed to somebody that thinks mechanism alone explains everything.
2: Yeah, so those are some of the you know very significant scientific reasons that make Darwin's theory problematic. Well, what about biblical reasons that you find make theistic evolution inconsistent with the creation account?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a really important uh, question because whenever we are looking at how does science integrate with the Christian faith? How do we, you know, make sense of science in light of the Christian worldview? The final arbiter always has to be compatibility with the biblical text. You know, if an idea is not compatible with the biblical text, regardless of the perspective that one is espousing, that view just simply cannot be something I think as Christians we should entertain in good conscience. And so, for example, when I look at the creation account that we see in Genesis 1 and even in Genesis 2 those two creation accounts, the words that are used to describe God's work as creator are words that imply God's direct personal involvement. They are words that cannot accommodate God creating through process. So, for example, we see the word bara used in Genesis 1. Bara means to originate something that has never existed before, where the implication is God is intimately involved in that process of creating. Or we see words like saw and yatsar or bana. These are words that would be used to describe a potter fabricating a piece of pottery, where we know that the potter is intimately involved in that process. Now, in those instances, those words mean to create something new from pre-existing material. But nevertheless, God is still intimately involved in that process. So in light of the way these words are utilized in the creation account and their meaning, it's hard to me to square that with the idea that God is creating through mechanism. But maybe the most significant challenge biblically to theistic evolution has to do with the question of the origin of humanity. Because If you argue that God is using evolution as a way to create, that includes God is using human evolution as the way to create human beings. And here again, we run into some very serious biblical problems. First of all, again, the description in the text of God creating human beings seems to imply God's direct, personal, and intimate involvement. But if you argue that God is creating through evolution, now you have a real problem with who Adam and Eve are, because Adam and Eve cannot be the very first human beings made in God's image that gave rise to all humanity. There's no way to make that work in an evolutionary framework, that Adam and Eve have to be part of a population, and or they have to be mythical. They can't be real individuals. That's the only way you can make sense of the human origins accounts in Scripture, in light of the view that that God is using evolution as a way to create. And to me, that is the real significant problem, because when you abandon a traditional view of Adam and Eve as the very first human beings that gave rise to humanity, made in God's image, you are undermining a whole ensemble of critical core doctrines to the Christian faith that are predicated on the view that Adam and Eve were historical individuals and the first human beings.
2: Yes, you know, that's one of the areas I really have trouble when it comes to theistic evolution, not only the science, but the way the creation account is interpreted. Tell us, how do some of the schools interpret the creation account?
1: Yeah, I mean, for the most part, what you'll see theistic evolutionists doing is one of two things. Arguing that the Genesis 1 creation account is actually a poetic description of God's creative work. It's not a literal history. And so sometimes this is called the framework hypothesis, where they argue that the Genesis 1 is poetic, or they might argue that Genesis 1 is actually ancient Near Eastern creation myth that the Hebrews appropriated, but that it's not historically or scientifically valid others might even argue that Genesis 1 again is simply totally a mythical construct. So that's how people tend to view uh, Genesis 1 is to really undermine its historicity arguing that it doesn't have scientific or historical accuracy and to me that's a very dangerous path to go down because if as Christians we're trying to engage non-believers and show them that the Christian faith is true but yet you take the foundational story for the for the christian worldview the creation story and you say it's not historically or scientifically valid then the reasonable view is that then the rest of scripture must not be valid either if it all rests and hinges upon this foundational story or you unwittingly you know play into the hands of people that are islamic apologists because muslims would argue that the old and the new testament has been corrupted And if you then are saying that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, for example, are scientifically and historically unreliable, then you're playing into the hands of Islamic apologists as well who are making that very point. So it's a very dangerous path to go down to begin to undermine the historical and scientific credibility of any aspect of Scripture, but particularly the creation accounts.
2: Yes. And, you know, you bring up a good point that I'm very uncomfortable with as well is, and it's the way they interpret Adam and Eve. Could you expand on that a little bit? Even the most serious theistic evolutionists who take the Genesis account seriously, even their interpretations, I find very not comfortable with that Adam is the first, that there were many humans, but maybe he's the first one with a soul or the first one created in the image of God, or he is representative. I mean. Tell us uh, how they interpret or who is Adam.
1: Yeah, and again, you know, Pat, your, your discomfort, I think, is legitimate, right? Because I share that same discomfort. And so one approach that some theistic evolutionists take is that Adam and Eve were actually mythical, that they were just like theological constructs, but they really weren't actual bona fide individuals. And, of course, that's very difficult to square with other scriptural passages, like the genealogy in Genesis 5, or the genealogy in Luke, which actually anchors, both genealogies are anchored in Adam, where Luke is treating Adam as if he was a real person, and that Jesus's lineage traces all the way back to Adam. Or in Genesis 5, that Noah's lineage traces all the way back to Adam as, as real people, or, or the Apostle Paul views Adam and Eve as real people. So does Jesus, it, and you see in, in for example, Mark 10:6. So, So it's hard to, to defend the mythical view. Now, the other approach is, and this is one that I find at least more palatable, is the idea that uh, Adam and Eve were representatives, that they weren't the sole people that were present, that they were there was a population, but Adam and Eve were selected by God to be representatives for all of humanity and placed in the garden, and then they fell and as a result of that sin then spread to all of humanity as Adam and Eve had children that inherited their sin, and then those children began to interbreed and intermingle with the other people that were outside the garden. Well, the problem I have with that is that nowhere in the, in the creation accounts for human origins do I see any mention of God selecting two individuals and placing them in the garden, but rather I see God creating Adam, placing him in the garden, and then Adam goes through a process where he discovers that he is alone, that there's no one like him, and then Eve is created as his helpmate. That doesn't make any sense whatsoever if you're saying that there was a population of human beings that God selected Adam from and Eve from. The text doesn't say that at all. So while it's at least a view that tries to give real to try to preserve the historicity of Adam and Eve, I still think it's biblically incompatible. And it raises all kinds of questions about, well then what do you mean by the image of God? How's the image of God transmitted to all people? How's the original sin transmitted to all people? There's a lot of other issues that arise theologically
2: from that view. Yes. So, you know, often a question old earth creationists get is that, all right, you hold to a literal Adam and Eve, but how old then? are humans.
1: Yeah, well, I'm of the opinion that the biblical text doesn't tell us when Adam and Eve were actually created. I think the text is silent on that. Now, we can infer from Scripture that they must have been appeared on earth fairly recently because they are the last of God's creative acts, that they are the pinnacle of God's creative work. And so they must have been created recently, but the, the biblical text, I think, is silent. Now, people are tempted to use the genealogies in Genesis 5 and 11, as a way to try to calculate when they think Adam and Eve would have been created, knowing that Abraham lived when Abraham lived and trying to work your way backward through the use of those genealogies. The problem is, is that in my view, the best biblical scholarship argues that those genealogies are not written for that purpose, but they really are written as theological constructs and that there are names that are omitted in those genealogies. That is, that there's telescoping going on where, again, the genealogies are incomplete in terms of chronology, but theologically complete in terms of the point that's trying to be made by the authors. And there's many examples of genealogies where we know names have clearly been omitted. Plus, the biblical word for son can actually mean descendant, And and the word begot that's translated as begot can mean to give rise to a line or a lineage. And so what I think you're looking at in those genealogies are patriarchs that lived, that were part of Adam's lineage, but it's not a direct father-son relationship, but it's essentially giving us key people that existed from the time of Adam to Noah in Genesis 5, and then from Noah to Abraham in Genesis 11. And so if you really look at those genealogies in light of these interpretive considerations, then I think what you could only conclude is that we really can't figure out when Adam and Eve were created by God from the genealogies, and therefore we need to turn uh, to science. And in my opinion, the the scientific evidence seems to indicate that Adam and Eve were created in the neighborhood of about 100,000 years ago.
2: Yes, and I mean, 100,000 compared to the age of the Earth, especially if we take an old Earth creationist perspective, or even a young Earth creationist perspective. I mean, that's still fairly recent. That's young, what you're talking about, 100,000 years.
1: Yeah, well, you know, and we have to keep in mind that this idea that, you know, modern humans appear at about 100,000 years ago from an evolutionary perspective is a radical idea. Because it wasn't that long ago where people viewed the origin of humanity happening about two million years ago, and that the origin of humanity happened where these primitive humans appeared in Africa, then migrated to different parts of the world, and then independently evolved in different regions of the world from a primitive form to a modern form over the span of two million years. But yet they were still essentially the same species. Well, now you have this view that, wait a minute, modern humans appear only 100,000 years ago, and instead of originating in multiple locations around the world, humanity seems to originate in a single location. And again, it's a recent origin of humanity from a relatively small population, not a globally diffuse population, and then you have this really provocative concept of mitochondrial, even Y-chromosomal atom, where using the genetic variability of, of everybody on the planet and mitochondrial DNA as a genetic marker You can literally show that everybody on the planet traces an origin back to an ancestral sequence that many people think corresponds to a single female individual dubbed mitochondrial Eve. And every man on the planet, likewise, using Y-chromosomal DNA, can actually trace an origin back to a single ancestral sequence that people believe corresponds to a single male individual dubbed a Y-chromosomal atom. And so this, these are really provocative results that are coming even from within the context of the evolutionary paradigm that echo, in some remarkable ways, uh, the biblical creation accounts.
2: Yes, and, you know, we've talked about this before. I think you go over it really well in your book, uh, Who is Adam?, but many in the theistic evolutionist camp would say, well, you know, men evolved from these hominids, and somewhere down the line is when they became the image of God, or, or contained the soul, finally. But your position is that these hominids and humans are distinct. One didn't evolve from the other. They are distinct species. That's your position, isn't it?
1: It is. And, and this is a really, I think, important point for people as they, again, try to understand what Old Earth creationism is about, is that, again, Old Earth creationism rejects the idea of human evolution. Now, we would acknowledge that that these hominins existed creatures like lucy and homo habilis and homo erectus and, and neanderthals but that we view them as creatures that god created that existed for a period of time and then went extinct that they had some emotional and intellectual capacities but they were nothing like human beings like modern humans that they were they were fundamentally distinct and so we would think of them in the same vein as we would think of chimpanzees, orangutans, and gorillas. Fascinating creatures that had, again, some measure of intelligence and some measure of emotional capacity, but again, they were nothing like human beings whatsoever. And the big difference would be that only human beings bear God's image, and as a result of being image bearers, that means that we have capacity for language. We are moral creatures. We have a, a sense of the transcendent, that we are religious Uh, creatures that are capable of entering into complex relationships with one another and are capable uniquely of entering into a relationship with our creator and that none of these hominins would have had that those capacities that they really are again fascinating creatures but nothing like us as human beings
2: yes that's important distinction i think to make now one of the things about the darwinian or the theistic evolution position is that many state that god created the universe and put the darwin's mechanisms in place in order to create life and then the diversity of life emerged from there but i find that to be quite difficult because to me the darwinistic mechanisms seem to go against the character of god you know for example natural selection or survival of the fittest that seems to go against god's character you know god of love who defends the weak the orphan natural selection seems to go against the character of god would you agree with that yes that is something that i too
1: am uncomfortable with because again the very engine that drives the evolutionary process is as you're pointing out natural selection which is survival of the fittest you know that creation emerges out of this process of death. There's an element of cruelty in many respects to to that, that mechanism of creation. And I find it hard to believe that that's the means by which a god would create. That would be the mechanism that god would employ, you know, to create. But then, you know, on top of that, again, it goes back to our identity as human beings, that an outworking of the evolutionary view particularly if you say human beings are the product of evolution, is that human beings are fundamentally no different than animals, that we are, in essence, only different in degree, not kind from any other creature, and that we have no greater inherent worth or value than any other organism that has ever existed in Earth's history. And this process of evolution is an unguided, undirected process where, according to the late Stephen Jay Gould, and other evolutionary biologists, has an unpredictable outcome. And as a result of that, human beings are just a a lucky happenstance of the evolutionary process, that we were not inevitable in any way. That tends to strip human beings of any kind of inherent meaning and purpose. And so not only are you saying, here's this evolutionary mechanism that seems to be where God would have had to employ this incredible element of death and cruelty to bring about his creative purposes, but that that mechanism seems to have, again, no direction or purpose. It's all happenstance and chance, and that it renders a human beings without any inherent meaning and purpose. So to me, I just find it hard to reconcile that as the mode by which God creates.
2: Well, you know, Fazrana, we could ask you questions all day on this. It's always a fascinating having you on. But uh, as we begin to wrap this up, I just want to make clear, we're not saying that theistic evolutionists are not Christian. You know, we're just saying we think it's a problematic when it comes to the scientific evidence and trying to match it up with the biblical creation account. Isn't that right?
1: That's exactly right. And I think it's really important that when it comes to complex issues like How do we understand the creation accounts in Scripture? How then do we integrate the biblical text and Christian theology with scientific discoveries? These are very challenging areas that require a wide range of expertise that has to be integrated. And so people that are deeply committed to the Christian worldview, that are deeply committed to following Jesus Christ, can literally wind up in very different places And while I think it's important that we challenge one another, that we debate and discuss these very important issues, because we want to get it right, that we don't use our disagreements as a reason to disfellowship people from the body of Christ. Just because we think somebody may have it wrong, or that they may be adopting a view that's going to create problems, that we don't, again, disfellowship them, but rather what we need to do is adopt a posture of, working together to try to discover where the truth actually lies and realize that we can learn from people in the body of Christ who take very differing perspectives than us. So I do learn things from my brothers and sisters who are theistic evolutionists, and I do learn things from my brothers and sisters who are young earth creationists, and and their challenges to my position force me to think through things more carefully and make sure that I haven't overlooked something that would undermine my position or weaken my position. So we need to adopt this approach of loving each other while in the midst of having these very spirited debates and dialogues about really critical issues that impact the Christian worldview and the Christian faith, but also impact our ability to engage non-believers.
2: Yes, and I think Reasons to Believe models that uh, wonderfully. I know you're in dialogue with theistic evolutionists and organizations like that, as well as Young Earth Creationism. And so I think RTV does a great uh, job in modeling that. Buzz, if people want to get more information on you or the things that we have discussed, where can they go and find more information?
1: The easiest thing to do, uh, Pat, would be to go to our website, uh, www. Dot so this is the Reasons to Believe website, www.reasons.org, and I also hang out on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram so people can look me up and follow me, like me, friend me, whatever, whatever you do on those different social media platforms.
2: Yes, fantastic. That's Reasons to Believe or rbt.org, fantastic A website, tremendous resources there for you. So Buzz, you know, thanks again for being with us here on evidence and answers
0: we've run out of time thank you for joining us here on evidence and answers radio broadcast we hope you enjoyed today's show if you would like Pat to speak at your church Bible study or perhaps hold an apologetics conference please give him a call that number in Hawaii is 4830586 or you may contact him through the evidence and answers website That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners. So for the opportunity to donate, head on over to our webpage. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org, and you may do so right there online on the homepage. You'll also find that we have a wide variety of resources available to you, everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share it with those around you. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckeran.